Father in heaven, as we continue to worship today, we're just so thankful for you and your word. Lord, you reveal yourself through the scriptures. And through them, we come to know Jesus, what he is like, and how it changes us. We pray today, Lord, as servants of the High King, that we would truly trust in you. That we would be changed and transformed and made new again. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're just tuning in, my name's Jeremy. We're glad you're worshiping with us. We're going through the book of 1 Peter in our church. We're almost done. We're in chapter 5 now. And we've seen his big theme, that there is tremendous joy ahead, that despite the fact that there are many twists and turns along the way, there's ups and downs, there's good days and bad days, everything imaginable on your journey from day one until the end, that regardless of what comes, that because of God and his promise, there is tremendous joy ahead. Now, as we follow that theme into chapter 5, what's happening is Peter is sort of summarizing the big idea and getting at all people by boiling them down into essentially two groups. So today, as I read these scriptures, what you will see is that there are two different groups and you look and see if you can find what those two groups are. And there is one overarching quality that applies to both, regardless of what group you consider yourself a part of, that that one quality, whether you're in group A or in group B, doesn't matter, applies to everybody equally. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says this, So I exhort the elders among you, As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what are the two groups? You got them? Good. Shepherds and followers, or shepherds and sheep, leaders and followers, whatever you want to call them. But for today's purposes, what I'm going to call them are leaders and followers. Now, what we see at the start of this passage is that to the leaders, the Apostle Peter says, shepherd the flock, shepherd the flock. I exhort the elders, he says, or the leaders of the people to shepherd the flock. So the leaders, those who, particularly in the church context, God has placed in positions of leadership and oversight, he's calling upon them first. And then after the leaders, he will move into 
the followers or the younger or everyone else. So we begin with the leaders, and the first thing that Peter says to them is to shepherd the flock. Now, when we hear the word shepherd, I think that probably a lot of us have sort of a Thomas Kincaid or a Christian bookstore painting sort of image in mind. We hear the word shepherd, and we think of, you know, somebody with long flowy hair and a white robe and a beautiful little lamb cuddled in their arm going, oh, no. Now that might be a nice image. And indeed, on certain days at certain times to certain sheep, that might be the shepherd's role. But that is by no means certainly the majority of his role. Instead, if we wanted to think of the shepherd a little bit more accurately, we might think of him not as little sheepy sheepy guy, but instead more like Gandalf, someone with a rod and a staff who sleeps out in the cold and gets dirty and stinky and has to fight off wolves and force the sheep to go where they're supposed to go because otherwise they would go the wrong way. That's the role of a shepherd. And if you don't believe me in my analogy, then look at the Bible and see what it says. What is the job of the shepherds, the elders, or the leaders in your church? What is their job? The very word to shepherd in the Greek language, the original word, is poimaino. And what that means is this. It occurs 11 times in the New Testament. Seven of the 11 means to feed, and the other four mean to rule. So what that tells us is, if, if our image of, of shepherd is sheepy, 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 then we've got to push that out and say, no, that's more culturally conditioned than biblically informed. What the Bible tells us a shepherd does is he feeds the sheep. Seven of the 11 times, it's feed. The other four are rule. So for An actual physical shepherd, what that means is his job is to get those sheep to grass or a safe place where they can be nurtured and grow. For the Christian shepherd, then, it's the same thing. For the pastor's role, for the elder's role, for the leader's role in your church, their job is to take you, the believers, to a place where you can be nurtured and grow. It's their job to provide you or equip you with the word of God that sustains your soul. For sheep, it's grass. For us, it's truth. It's the work of the Holy Spirit written in the Holy Writ, the scriptures, the Bible, the word of God to us. That's what we feed on, and that's how we grow. So the shepherd's job is to do that for you. The second, so the first thing is feed, 7 of 11. The second thing is to lead or rule, 4 of 11. Now, in this case, in the case of a shepherd, a lot of times the leadership has to be directive. It has to be assertive. The sheep, if they sit down in the pasture, are very happy just to lay there. But they can't do that forever because eventually their circumstances are going to change. They're going to need to adapt, and they're going to need to be able to move. In order to thrive and live and grow, they have to adapt and move and follow the shepherd and change. And so the shepherd's job is to say, okay, sheep, come on. Here we go. Let's go this way. 
we can't stay here forever because if we do, we're going to run out of grass and we're going to trample it all down and it won't be any good and then you'll die. We need to move. And so too with a pastor. When a pastor or an elder comes to their church, there's a lot of good things going for it. And they'll see that and they'll say, yeah, man, we like this. We're happy about this. We're in a good spot. But eventually... We're going to have to move because we can't stay here. We're going to have to grow and adapt and change. And so the shepherd may come alongside and say, hey, this is the direction we're headed. And if you want to be a good sheep, you need to follow that. If you take it back to the physical world and the physical sheep say, we're going to sit there and we're going to do whatever we want, then the shepherd's going to grab their staff or their rod and say, no, you're not. Boom, 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 boom. Move along, little sheepy. It's time to go. They have to move the sheep. To a safe place. Shepherd the flock that is among you, verse 2. And then, particularly, one more qualification, one more thing that this says. How do we do that? How do elders and shepherds and pastors and leaders do that? By exercising oversight. You see, it doesn't even allow you to fill in the gaps of what you think shepherding might mean. It spells it out for you. After it gives the command, shepherd the flock, it tells you what does that look like with the next clause. What it looks like is exercising oversight. Now, if I would have remembered, I would have brought with me today a pair of binoculars. And the reason is, is because the word here translated oversight is episcopo, the same place we get the word episcopalian. And the idea is that someone sees something or oversees it from a ways off. So if you think of a spy, for example, if they're moving in to survey a certain area, often what's pictured is someone with binoculars. And the reason is, is because they're removed, but they're looking upon to gather intel and then use that intel in the decision-making process. I'm not just making this up. The Greek word actually occurs in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, where it says that by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the episcopal, the spies, the overseers. The same word translated overseer here and overseer in the New Testament is this word which essentially means to spy or to look over or watch out. And why does this matter? Why are you doing this, Pastor Jeremy? Just because you like to make the cool word connections? No, here's the thing. Sometimes within a church, people will look at the leadership and they might be tempted to be critical. They could say, oh, well, those elders, they're just off in a room somewhere making decisions and they're not in touch with the people. And they criticize and maybe they sideswipe or they do whatever in order to prove their point. But what the Bible is actually telling us is that in order for them to do their jobs, they're supposed to be a little bit removed, not a lot removed, but enough to be able to step back and see the big picture. That's the idea of oversight, that they can't be in the weeds or be involved in every single little thing because they're trying to provide direction for the whole. They might be that shepherd standing up on the hill looking out over the flock. They may not be 
in the flock, stepping in the poo itself, but instead they're up on a cliff and saying, okay, I see where we're at now, but up over yonder, there's a better place, and if we start moving, we can get there by nightfall and be in a good situation come the next day. That's what you want your shepherds to do. So the job of the shepherd, according to the Bible, here in First Peter chapter 5, is to feed and lead and oversee. Feed, lead, and oversee. That's the first group of people. The shepherds, the leaders. Now the second group of people is the followers or the sheep. Now in a church setting, you know, this refers to pastors. So, so there's the leaders, the pastors and elders and other leaders. And then the followers, the people, the sheep. Here it says, likewise, you who are younger, verse 5, be subject to the elders. Be subject to the elders. And that word, be subject, submit, happens a lot in the Bible, and it's a very important word. And it's not just for the people who uh, consider themselves of no value. This word is even used of Jesus, who submits to his parents and submits to the Father. So it's not a bad word. It's actually a good word. Sometimes people from outside the Christian faith will try to make it seem like submission is a negative thing, but the Bible always portrays it as positive. It tells us to submit, particularly those who are younger, who are following the elders, to the leadership of the elders. Now that's hard. Let's just admit it. Let's just be frank. Let's be honest, can we? It's hard to submit, regardless of who you are or where you're at. If someone in authority has an idea that they want you to do that you're not really too sure about, that's difficult. And yet the Bible specifically calls us to submit ourselves to God's leadership in our lives. Now within the church setting, the way I see the way I see it playing out is this. A lot of times, people have things that they're very passionate about. I'll give you some examples. For example, someone is passionate about evangelism. God has given them the spiritual gift of evangelism. They were perhaps born into a non-Christian home and someone evangelized them and their life changed and they're dynamically and radically transformed and they've seen the movement from darkness to light and they understand that it's the greatest thing in the world and they want to share it with everybody. Hallelujah. Amen. Evangelism. It's great. But then what happens is that person with the gift of evangelism, with a heart for evangelism, the passion for evangelism, comes to the elders or comes to the pastors or comes to the leaders and says, our church needs to be all about evangelism. Look at the Great Commission. It tells us to go and make disciples, and we've got to tell everybody everywhere about Jesus. And the pastors and elders say, yes, amen. Everyone needs to know about Jesus. But there's not only a Great Commission, there's also a Great Commandment. And so while we're telling everybody, we also have to be showing everybody. And so although evangelism is amazing, it can't be the only thing. Christianity is holistic. It includes so many different things. And so what happens is, with all good intent, people who have certain 
experiences, who have certain giftings, who have certain passions, they come forward and they believe that theirs really should be number one. But it's not always. At least for a church. And so what do you do? Well, you have to submit. You have to subject yourself. You have to wear your convictions with humility and grace, and that's hard. Let me give you another example. Let's say, for example, someone has a spiritual gift of mercy. Maybe they had a hard time in their life. They didn't know Jesus. And then someone showed them mercy, and they experienced the love of God, and grace came in, and things changed. And all of a sudden, they realized mercy ministries are huge. They're important. So they come to the pastor, and they say, Hey, pastor, our church should be all about recovery. There are so many people out there who are struggling and hurting and down in the dumps. And if we could just focus on this one thing, we would save hundreds of thousands. We should be all about mercy. And the pastors and the elders say to this person, we are so thankful that God has gifted you with the gift of mercy. We'll pray and ask God for his leading and see if that's what he wants our church to focus on. But maybe he will and maybe he won't. What about a sports ministry? Another example. I'm known given all kinds of crazy ones, but I've heard them. I, someone comes to Christ through the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, maybe a college ministry. Many people come to Christ in college through whether Campus Crusade or InterVarsity or whatever else, and they come with that background, and they're like, "Woo, this is the thing. you got to do it just like this because here's a dynamic model that worked for me and changed my friends and really was awesome. Do this. Same thing. Pastors and elders look and they say, hey, sports ministry is great. Do we have the property? Do we have the personnel? Do we feel the Holy Spirit prodding us in this direction? Are we the only church in the area who has this opportunity? Or is maybe another church already doing that? What is God calling us specifically to do? And is this it? And you can go through so many examples. And people are so passionate. But the reality is, to understand how a church works, you have to pay attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where it talks about the body and says, look, there's many parts and they're all good things and they're all important and they're all essential. And so we're not going to say to one part, eh, you're not important or another, you know, go away. But what we do have to do as elders, as overseers and pastors is step back and look at the body that God has given us and say, Where do we believe our great shepherd, our chief shepherd, Jesus, is moving our flock? We can see all these different pieces on the board. How is he moving that blob forward? Which direction is it headed? We want to reveal that to you this Thursday night at 6.30 p.m. on YouTube, our new mission and vision for Midland Free. And indeed, we've received a lot of feedback and a lot of contributions and a lot of really cool stuff. And we're excited to take that and put it all together and say, yeah, it's all important, but we believe this is how God is leading us now. We, your overseers, we, your elders, we, your pastors and shepherds, believe that this is the direction for Midland Evangelical Free Church at this point in our life. And indeed, you know, eventually, four, five, ten years from now, that may change. It's not always the same emphasis, but it's always the same God, it's always the same message, and it's always the same truth. And so we want to roll that out to you this Thursday at 6.30. So there's the leaders, the shepherds, the elders, the leaders of the church, 
and there's the followers. The leader's job is to feed, lead, and oversee, to direct the flock. The follower's job is to be subject to their leaders, to submit and follow and participate in the process. So what then is the quality that applies to everyone? Verse 5. Verse 5 says this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The quality that applies to everyone is humility. Humility. Now, I know a lot of us have a certain image in mind when we think of the word humility. Do you have it? What's yours? Let me show you one. This is something I asked my son Ezra to draw. I am not an artist, but he is. And this is Lowly Worm. Now, if you're familiar with the children's stories, the books about Lowly Worm, you know they're kind of cute and funny and all that. But if you've had any experience in life, maybe you've opened your mouth and said something you shouldn't, maybe you spoke at the wrong time, or maybe you tried to pull something off and it didn't quite go like you thought it would, all of a sudden, before long, you're embarrassed and you're feeling like you are a lowly worm. I want to be very clear about something today, and that's this, that humility, the kind that the Bible calls for, biblical humility, is not humiliation. It's not shame. Instead, when you chase it down and study what it means in Scripture to be humble, what you actually see is that true humility is born of confidence. Not insecurity, not selfishness, not self-centeredness, and certainly not self-confidence. You see, that's the mistaken assumption that so many of us make. When we say the word confidence, what we hear is self-confidence. In fact, that's what's taught in a lot of places. How do children become more self-confident? That's not what you want. Yes, you want to appreciate the ways in which God has designed and gift them. But what you need to understand is that self-confidence will never get you where you want. Self-confidence will never get you where you want. Why? Because if you're looking at self, then there's basically two different extreme outcomes of your action. One is you're happy with it. Hey, what I did was pretty cool. And then you feel good. Feel good about yourself. And you become prideful. That was good. I was better than somebody else. I'm pretty good at that. Or the other option is, yeah, not as good as I wanted. <laughs> oh, man, I'll never get this right. Why did they get all the talent? I'm no good. Ugh, brother, this is a waste of time. What am I doing? Shame insecurity and what happens is when you focus on self then you oscillate between the two extremes of pride or insecurity of haughtiness or shame and you really don't want to be in either spot instead where you want to be is right in the perfect middle which is called humility now biblical humility comes not from self-confidence but instead from confidence in your king confidence in your king so let me give you another image this is the other one i asked him to draw for me i think this little fella is an excellent representation of what it truly means to be a royal servant 
of the high king. And his name is Reepicheep. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Chronicles of Narnia, then you know this guy well. Here's one of the most beautiful characters in all of Narnia. And essentially what he is, is this little mouse. But he is no little character. Instead, he embodies everything it means to be a true servant of the High King. And as you follow this character throughout this narrative, what you see is that the secret of Reepicheep, and indeed all royal servants like him, is that they unequivocally entrust their souls to their king. They believe in their king. For for Reepicheep, it's Aslan, the great lion. But for other servants, wherever they're at, what you see is that because of their loyalty, because of their drive, because of their trust in their king, that they will follow him to whatever end. Whether it's life or death, heaven or hell, everything in between falls under the umbrella of entrusting their souls to their faithful creator. Royal servants trust their king. Now, wait a minute, Pastor Jeremy. I thought you said this is a servant maybe on humility, and now you're talking about trust. Well, that's just the thing. You can't ever become humble unless you're trusting in the king. If you're trusting in yourself, then you're either prideful or shame, feeling shame. If you're trusting in yourself and someone takes advantage of you, then it's on you to get even. If you're trusting in yourself, there's no win. But if you're trusting in your king, if you know that he is going to be faithful to complete his good work in you, if you know that God, the God who sees is also the Lord who will reward, then you don't have to fight. You don't have to labor. You don't have to strive. You just sit back and trust in him. And therefore, whatever he calls you to do is okay. There's no task too high and there's no task too low because you are trusting in your king. And so this morning, as we get ready to conclude, I know at least a little bit from our own experience that this is kind of an unusual time. And it may be uncertain and scary and stressful. You may feel like your workload is exponentially increased. This time is the perfect time to ask yourself the question, am I trusting in my king? Am I truly trusting in Jesus? When I'm feeling discouraged, am I trusting Jesus right now for whatever it is I'm discouraged about? If I feel like that's not How come they get to? Am I trusting Jesus to judge and provide justice? If I feel like I need to get even, oh, something's getting me inside. Am I trusting Jesus, the God who sees and the Lord who will reward? Trusting in the king is the anchor of our souls. And so 
That is the thing that I believe, if we do it, will drive all the other virtues. Whether we're a leader or a follower, it doesn't matter. If you're a leader and you want to be a good one, you have to be humble. If you're a follower and you want to be a good one, you have to be a humble. And the way to be humble is not by drooping your head and saying, Woe is me, I'm lowly worm, I'm no good. But instead, the way to be humble is to say, You know what? I'm not perfect, but I know the one who is. And he's got my back, so I'll trust in him. And this situation, whatever it is, come what may, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. If you're a shepherd, feed, lead, and oversee. If you're a sheep, be subject. But whoever you are, wherever you're at, Regardless of what may be, trust the king. Royal servants trust their king. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time. We pray that you would bless your word and the hearing thereof that your truth would fall on fertile soil, seeds would be planted and fruit would grow. You would cause us to trust you more and more every day, in every circumstances of our life, so that come what may, we can be loyal and true and good servants of our High King. In whose name we pray. Amen.